Uh, before we get into the word, I just want to throw a quick shout out real quick. Um, I'm so excited that tomorrow, Monday night at 6.30, Joe and Sam, two guys you may have seen in our church and grown to love, are starting a young adults thing. And so if you're a young adult present, uh, or if you know a young adult who needs a uh, godly, biblical, Christ-centered connection, some relationships that would encourage and strengthen them, encourage them to come here tomorrow night at 6.30. Uh, if for no other reason, a good way to get young adults excited is the fact that there's going to be pizza there as well. So uh, get them to come and satisfy their, their hunger of their stomach and, and let the Lord satisfy the hunger of their soul. Amen. Amen. If you're new here, we welcome you. We're so thankful that you joined us this Sunday morning. We're doing something called the Year of the Bible as a church family, where we're taking January to December to go Genesis to Revelation, following the story of Scripture. That is one story about Jesus, even when it's talking about guys like Adam and Noah and Moses and Abraham and so on. It's all the story leading up to and preparing us for Jesus. And then in the New Testament, revealing Jesus, explaining Jesus, what he did, what he accomplished, and then stirring our hearts to look forward still to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Before we get into the word, have you ever had someone that you couldn't stand? Now, I know in church we can't admit that, right? Like, no, mo no, maybe that's you, Stephen. Like, uh, I've never had those problems. Yeah, if we're honest, all of us have had at least one person in our life that we feel that we couldn't stand. Someone, of course, it's not that you would ever, ever, ever wish evil on someone, but maybe you would have never wanted to see them do well. And I am not putting that out there as if this is some endorsement of that ideal as if it were Christian, because it's not. That's an ungodly attitude, but I have been there sinfully before, feeling that way. And in case you're sitting there thinking, wow, I, I must be better than him, I'm just going to ask you, have you ever seen uh, the failure or fall or mistakes of uh, a leader or a figure on the other side of the political aisle? Because that's one of the most common areas where you'll see this little attitude come up in your heart where you go, ah, <laughs> See, they were who we thought they were. We've all been there where we have had those kinds of hearts and feelings and attitude. And today, what we're going to see from God's word is how our God is so gracious, so kind, so loving, so full of mercy that he saves the most unlovely and unlikely individuals, the most unlovely and unlikely people groups. Last week, we started off in the book of Acts uh, by opening up the book of Acts and seeing that Jesus left his disciples with his mission and with his spirit, that he gave them a great commission telling them to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, we saw him tell them, go and wait, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will receive power, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and to Judea, and to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then we also see throughout the book of Acts is that unfolding of that account. 
that the, the disciples are filled in Acts chapter 2 with the Spirit of God. He transforms them and empowers them. We saw last week the summary being that God, the Holy Spirit of God, fills the people of God and empowers them for the mission and purpose of God. The way we said it last week was that the Holy Spirit of God empowers the people of God to accomplish the purposes of God. And as we go through the book of Acts, we then see Acts 1-8 playing out. Acts 2, they receive power from the Holy Spirit. And then the rest of the book is the apostles and the disciples taking that gospel message, spreading it at first in Jerusalem, where you see people like Peter standing up in front of thousands of people and preaching a powerful sermon that convicts them and cuts them to the heart, and 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. You see Peter again stand up and give another great sermon. You see a guy named Stephen who is probably the best preacher that there ever was. <laughs> That's right. If you notice in the Bible, his name is spelt with a PH. I'm just saying. You pagans with your V's, you need repentance. I'm kidding. Calm down. That's a joke. Okay. Good Lord. Have mercy. Stephen stands up under the power of the Holy Spirit and gives another confrontational sermon, trying to help these Jews see that Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all their Jewish promises, all the Jewish covenants that were created with Abraham and with, uh, with Moses and with David, that Jesus is the answer, the fulfillment of all those things in your Old Testament scriptures. He is the long-awaited Messiah, and they hate him for it, and they stone Stephen to death. There we see in Acts chapter 7, the account of the stoning of Stephen, that he confronted these guys, called them out for their sin, and instead of having their hearts broken over their sin, like those in Acts chapter 2 that said, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, well, repent and believe and be baptized. Instead, these guys at the preaching of, of Stephen, their hearts are hardened, and they're embittered, and they hate him. And they cast him out, and they take him, and they stone him to death. And at that scene in Acts chapter 7, there's another character we're introduced to named Saul. Saul is standing there while all these people are stoning Stephen, pummeling him with these rocks, bruising and breaking open his body, crushing his skull. This brutal punishment, this brutal pain, for an innocent man, faithful to the Lord, forgiven because of his, uh, the grace of God, that they're stoning him to death because he's calling out their sin and standing watching all of it is a man named Saul, a Pharisee, a religious expert, knowing the law, knowing the Torah, knowing the prophets, trained under Gamaliel, the premier rabbi of the day and age. This Saul, passionate, for his God, so he thinks, and thinks he's doing the Lord's work, standing there, smiling, looking at this Stephen being murdered, the first martyr for the name of Christ. Stephen commits himself to the Lord, and the Lord takes him, and he dies. This was the initiation of a terrible wave of persecution against the church of Jesus Christ. 
And the Christians were scattered abroad from it throughout, uh, throughout Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles, they stayed in Jerusalem. So chapters one through seven tell the story of that first stage of Jesus' promise in Acts 1.8, that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them, chapter two. And then you shall be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, chapters one through seven of the book of Acts, is the gospel spreading in Jerusalem. Then we get to chapter eight. And then in chapter eight, we see the initial shift to the next phase. So if you've got your Bible, turn to chapter eight real quick. And yes, I know our reading plan this week started in chapter 10, but I've got to just touch these couple of things for where we're getting today from our reading plan. I also know our Bible reading plan uh, took us through the whole book of James. And unfortunately, we're just going to have to like wait till next year to get to the book of James because there ain't no way I can teach five chapters from Acts and the book of James in one sermon. I just can't do it. So we're going to do a sermon on it later next year. We'll get there. Acts chapter eight, verses one through three. And Saul approved of his execution, talking about Stephen's martyrdom. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul is a man who thinks he's doing the Lord's work, but he's fighting against the Lord and he's persecuting the church. He's uh, arresting and imprisoning Christians and at the opportunities that he can, like Stephen, he's having them killed. He's having them murdered. And because of this great persecution that Saul was leading, the Christians were spread all throughout the region to escape with their lives. But this was also to serve God's sovereign plan, that the gospel would spread now to all of Judea and Samaria, because Philip is another character we read about starting in chapter eight, who would be among those who would spread out to Samaria and start giving the gospel to this despised people group. And it's important that we recognize and remember Samaritans were hated by Jews. Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritan, Samaritans hated Jews, which is why the parable that Jesus taught of the good Samaritan that we're all so familiar with, we're not familiar with, we don't feel how scandalous that, that story is unless you're aware how much Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They hated each other because Samaritans were a people of Israel who were exiled up to Assyria when the southern kingdom was exiled to Babylon. And these Assyrians married in with the Israelites, the northern kingdom Israelites, and so they, began, they became mingled in blood, not only in that, but the Samaritans, when they came back to live in Samaria... They said, no, you know what? We don't believe all of this Old Testament, what we would call Old Testament. We don't believe all of this is scripture. We're only gonna take the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the only part that we believe is scripture. And beyond that, if, as if that wasn't enough to offend the rest of the Jews, they tweaked and changed a lot of even that scripture. Not only that, they didn't believe that Jerusalem was God's holy city, that you were supposed to worship in the temple in Jerusalem. They made their own 
temple on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And so there's all these ways in which Samaritans would have said to Jews, hey, we're worshiping the same God. We love the same God. You guys are wrong on some stuff. And the Jews are like, no, you guys are perverting our faith. You're perverting scripture. You're perverting worship and faithfulness to God. And there was hatred and animosity between them. As if that wasn't enough, when all these kingdoms in different times and different uh, seasons were fighting against each other, the Samaritans in the northern kingdom sometimes would partner with other pagan countries to fight against Israel. So there was a deep-seated, deep-rooted hatred and animosity, racism, honestly, between these two different people groups that were next-door neighbors. And so it's important we're aware of that because when this gospel message of this Jewish Messiah who was coming from Jewish lineage to fulfill the Jewish scriptures and complete the Jewish covenants and be this Jewish Messiah, Jews would look at Samaritans and Gentiles and go, it ain't for them. But as we see throughout scripture, God had another plan. And for us today, 2,000 years later, as a room full of almost all Gentiles, maybe you've got some Jew in your blood, but if you have none, then you are a Gentile, meaning not Jewish. This is good news for us. Because what we see next is Philip goes to Samaria, and he begins preaching the gospel. And these despised and hated Samaritans start receiving the gospel. Philip goes and preaches, and the Samaritans received the word of God, and they received, here's the further scandal, not only did they gladly receive the word of God, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they received the spirit of God, where they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Just think for a moment here. If you're the Jew who has all your sacred scripture and you're so familiar with your people's history, and you know that your God is so holy, so very holy, that that God stays up on the mountain and only Moses goes up on the mountain to see him. Or in the next phase, your God is so holy that he dwells in the holy of holies inside the innermost midst of that tabernacle. And only one person a year, the high priest, after going through the most rigorous purification rituals, can go into the presence of God. And if he messed up one thing in those purification rituals, he drops dead in the presence of God because God is that holy. A God that is so holy that a guy with good intentions walking next to the cart that the ark was on hits the bump with the cart and the ark of the covenant starts to get ready to fall off to the ground and with his good intentions goes, oh no, and tries to stabilize the ark of the covenant and because God is so holy and this impure man drops dead next to the ark because he was impure and touched the ark that carried the presence of God. This same God that is so holy when the temple is built just like the tabernacle only once a year could the high priest after going through all of this rigorous ritual be purified enough to go in to the presence of God and offer sacrifice on behalf of the nation of Israel. This God is so holy, so meticulous, so pure that he cannot dwell with uncleanliness, all of a sudden gives his spirit to unclean people. 
people that the Jews would look at and go, Samaritans, unclean. They have perverted the truth. They have perverted scripture. They have perverted worship. They have perverted our views of God. And these people that are unclean hear the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ, confess their sin, repent and turn from it, and receive the forgiveness that comes from Christ and are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. If you are a first century Jew, this is scandalous. Funny thing is, Philip goes on preaching a couple other places. He goes down in the southeast of Judea and he finds this eunuch, which, have fun explaining this to your kids later, he was castrized, which would have made him ceremonially unpure, ritually impure, to have castrated himself. And, but it also says that he was a God-fearer, meaning a, a, a non-Jew who feared the Lord, worshiped the Lord, but because of a few things like his eunuch status and his Gentile status would have made him impure, but he was someone who was hungry for God, worshiping God, praying to God. And because of that, Philip goes down and preaches to him while actually he's sitting there reading Isaiah and, and Philip's like, hey, do you know what you're reading? And he's like, how can I understand this unless someone teaches me? And Philip goes, all right, sweet. And he teaches him how this passage from Isaiah that he's reading, he says, hey, this stuff you're reading right now, it's actually about that dude, Jesus of Nazareth. Remember the guy that we heard about a few weeks ago? All the ruckus about him being crucified and how people were saying he was raised from the dead? Yeah, he really was. And this is talking about him. And this eunuch, this Ethiopian eunuch, another race, another class, another people group that would have been considered outsiders, this Ethiopian eunuch says, what would prevent me from being baptized? And he comes to faith, he repents of his sin and he's baptized and brought into the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit just zaps Philip out of there like he said, beam me up, Scotty. Like he's just, boop, he's gone. Like how awesome would that be if I like finished my sermon and was like, <laughs> no, okay. And then we find ourselves in Acts chapter nine. Well, remember that guy we talked about named Saul? Here he is again. We were given a precursor, a mention of him earlier. Let's turn to Acts chapter nine. This guy we heard about, Saul, you know, the one who was standing endorsing the murder of Stephen, the one who was giving his life to go squash this new perverted faith called Christianity, the one who was doing everything he could to have Christians arrested and beaten and even killed. Yeah, that guy. Let's read about him in Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's meaning Christianity, this is the way. That's what it was originally called before it was called Christianity. It was called the way. So you have a right to say this is the way. A few people get that, okay? Belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. 
But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. That street still exists today. Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Come in and lay hands on him. Uh, or he's seeing in this vision that a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, uh, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So you think you're bad. You think you've messed up. You think you've done so much that God couldn't forgive you. Or maybe you have heard enough gospel to where maybe it's penetrated your heart to where you can accept, okay, maybe, maybe God really is that loving and forgiving and could actually love me and forgive me. But in light of the things I've done, there's no way he could use me. And if ever those thoughts, those feelings, those lies are coming into your heart and mind, I just want you to go to Acts chapter 9 and read this over and over and over and see the man who was murdering Christians. And ask yourself if the things you have done that the enemy accuses you of to try and make you feel like you can't come to God for salvation or even if you've been saved and you've offended God with your sin to where you feel like he's mad at you because you fell again and that you cannot come back to him because how could I do that same thing again? How could I have struggled with that one more time? How could I have fallen short? These lies that the enemy uses to keep you from God just remind yourself that there was a man named Saul who was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ who stood there smiling with glee as Stephen was stoned to death. This is why the apostle Paul, also called Saul, and no, that wasn't a name change. Like he was so changed that God gave him a new, a new name. No, Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Greek name. It was very common in that day. 
This man, the Apostle Paul, form, or who we see in these accounts known as Saul, this is why when he wrote to the churches, he says, I am the chiefest of sinners. Because in his mind, he knows what he was doing before he came to Christ. This is the same guy who also wrote of himself, not only saying, I'm the chiefest of sinners, but in other times he said, I'm the least of the apostles. Because he knows what he was doing before he came to Christ. Yet he is also the same guy who God used to spread the gospel to the Gentiles, spread the gospel as far as Rome and to the ears of Caesar. He's the man who would write the second largest chunk of the New Testament. The largest chunk goes to the author Luke, who wrote his Gospel of Luke and this account of Acts. Those are two really big volumes. Second in, in volume size was all the writings of Paul. So next time you feel like God couldn't love me because I've done this and this and this, next time you think God couldn't actually forgive me because I know like nobody's perfect and everybody sins, but I've really done some messed up stuff. Look at Saul. Look at the guy God chose that Jesus said to Ananias, I know what he's done, but he is my chosen instrument to spread the gospel to the Samaritans, the Gentiles, to the children and kings of Israel. I remember when I was in college back in Arkansas, when I went to South Arkansas Tech studying video production before I went to Bible school. Some of you guys might have heard me share the story before, but there was a guy there named Kenan who became a friend of mine over our time being in class together. And Kenan was a gangster. And I'm not saying that the way we say it today, like, man, you're such a gangster, like, like you're hardcore, no, like legitimate gangster. Like in the area of South Arkansas I grew up in, there was a strong gang presence of Crips and Bloods that had violent clashes. They were dangerous. Kenan was involved in one of those gangs. And I remember after spending a lot of time talking to him and investing in relationship with him, I finally felt like there was a day he knew I was a Christian. And I finally sat next to him and I said, Keenan, man, I want to talk to you about Jesus. And he said, Steve, listen, man, I've heard that stuff and it sounds good, but you don't know the things I've done. I've killed people. He's like, God couldn't forgive someone like me. And I'm sitting here going, Look, let me show you. And he believed it was too good to be true. And I hope and pray that he came to faith after that. And maybe that was the seed that I planted that hopefully by the grace of God, someone else came and watered and hopefully God has changed his life. I don't know. I, I have no way to find him or catch up with him. I looked for him online. But those are the lies that the enemy would use to try to keep you and others from seeing how great all we tend to see is how great our sin is, and it is great. A holy God is not willing to have fellowship with uncleanliness and sin and wickedness, but that is why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life in our place, who paid our sin debt on the cross for us, 
not so that God would look at us and give us an opportunity to try harder, do better, but that we could look at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, confess our sin, repent, and place our faith and our hope wholly upon him and what he accomplished so that when we look at our sin, we could recognize God no longer holds that junk against us, but if we are in Christ, having placed our faith in him, he now looks at us and sees the righteousness of his son imputed to us. This is the gospel and that these unclean, unworthy, Gentile people can be brought into the family of God, not because we're good, not because we've observed the right rituals, not because we've white-knuckled it and determined to do better, but because Jesus lived perfectly in our place, paying our debt on the cross, and our place is to place our faith in him. And when we do, we are counted righteous before God. Amen? That is our hope. Turn over one more chapter, Acts chapter 10. We're gonna see this, this theme dialed in even further. Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what is known as the Italian cohort. And I'll pause right there. Caesarea was the Roman capital seat in the area of Judea, meaning uh, Pilate and all the Roman leaders and governors and all that kind of stuff tended to live in Caesarea and they would come to Jerusalem for the different festivals, which is why at Passover when Jesus was crucified, that's why Pilate was there. He normally would live in Caesarea amongst all the rest of the Roman delegation of that, um, of that country. And so Caesarea is the Roman capital, if you will, of this area. And here we have a character introduced to us named Cornelius, that it tells us he was a centurion, meaning he was the leader of a hundred soldiers. And also centurions, it's important that you know, were very, very, very wealthy. They were paid 10 times on average, more than what the average soldier was paid. I'm trying to just paint a picture here of the different types of characters that we see God saving in these chapters of Acts. Because we've got uh, Saul, who was the religious Pharisee, the expert, who is humbled by the grace of God, brought to repentance, who we're gonna see in, uh, who we just saw. And before that, we saw this Ethiopian eunuch and we see Samaritans that are all these random different people who are being united into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit of God. And now this Cornelius, who like the eunuch, is painted as a God-fearer, meaning someone who likes this Jewish God, prays to him three times a day, is mindful of some of the Jewish scriptures, but is not fully adherent, meaning he's not circumcised and he can't go into the court to offer sacrifices. Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. There was, those were two of the three necessary requirements to follow God back then. About the ninth hour, which would be 3 p.m., about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, a leather tanner, whose house is by the sea. 
When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So he grabs two guys and says, guys, I just had a vision with an angel, told me this, go there and find this dude. Picking up in verse nine. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he, and be, he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened up and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. That's a good one to highlight, underline, circle, star, whatever you want. What God has called clean, let no one call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed at what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. And he called out, or, and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was responding, or, or while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion and an upright and God-fearing man who is well-spoken by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them and to be his guests. The next day he arose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted up, saying, Stand up! I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. He's pointing out here the issue. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent me. And Cornelius said, well, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. 
As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. (laughs) But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not only to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the anointed one by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. God loves the unlovely and forgives the unforgivable. God loves the unlovely and forgives the unforgivable. What a comfort and salve to our soul. Because every single one of us knows who we have been and what we have done. The things that no one else knows. The motives, the wrong intentions in our hearts that we can even have while we do good and right things. God sees it all. All the things that would make us unclean or uncommon, all of the things that would make a holy God turn away, that same holy God, driven by love and mercy, turns to, and not only turns to, but comes down, takes on flesh in Jesus Christ. You might be thinking, Stephen, following Jesus sounds great. It sounds amazing, this thought that that there is a good and loving God who loves me with that kind of love, but you don't know how bad I am. You don't know the things I've done. You don't know how many times I've given myself over to the same old sins. Stephen, it sounds great, this idea that I could be welcomed in a church family, but I look around and I feel like I'm a little different like I come from the wrong background or like I don't have the right appearance, like I don't have this neat and tidy life, like I don't have all my ducks in a row. In fact, my life is much less like a neat row of ducks and much more like a a sloppy, muddy pigsty. And you know pigs are unclean. And the scripture says, let What God has called clean, even pigs in pigsties, let no man call unclean. And the love and the grace of God is screaming in your face today. I don't care about any of that. I care about you. 
I love you just the way you are. All your junk, all your baggage, all your sin, all your issues, all of your bad decisions, all of your regrets, bring them to me. Take my love, receive my forgiveness, be filled with my spirit, come to me, you who are old and dead and sin, and be made new. Be made clean by my power, by my spirit, by the blood of Christ. What do these accounts teach us about our relationship with God? It teaches us that nothing but you is keeping you from coming to God. Nothing but you is keeping you from coming to God. Not your background, not your sin, not your bad decisions, not all the things that you would use to try and say, God couldn't love me, God couldn't use me. You are the only thing. Nothing is stopping you. In fact, if we went to Romans chapter 8, we would see the Apostle Paul telling the church in Rome, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I'm gonna skip down verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have several accounts here back to back of people being saved and filled by the Holy Spirit of God that would have been the least you would have expected. Samaritans? No, no. God couldn't love Samaritans. He most certainly wouldn't put his Holy Spirit in them. An Ethiopian eunuch perpetually unclean from a decision he made one time in his life? No way. Saul, are you kidding me? Do you know what that dude has done? He kills Christians. There's no way. Story after story of every person going on with the spread to all the Gentiles, of all the people and all the people groups that would have made everyone go, there's no way. <laughs> there's no way God would love, forgive, accept, and indwell them. The same God has already blown the minds of Jews in Jerusalem with the overwhelming truth that the mountain, the tabernacle, the temple are no longer where the presence of the holy God dwells. No longer is God near to us, but God is within us. How could a holy God permit an unholy people to actually be filled with the Holy Spirit by that sacrifice of Jesus Christ? That's how. That's why from his miraculous grace, he does. But that's not all. To heap scandal on top of scandal, the holy God not only starts saving unholy individuals from among the Jews, but he starts saving unholy individuals from unholy, unclean people groups. This is scandalous. We don't feel this because we're Gentiles and grown up in modern America. We read this and we're like, oh, they went and spread the gospel to Samaria and to all the Gentiles. That's neat. No, you don't feel how scandalous this is. How life-changing this is. These Jewish Christians 
hearing how ungodly their whole lives, how ungodly and evil and defiled and pagan and unclean all the other people of the world are. They've heard this their whole life, and it's true. It's true. But you know what else was true? That they were about to learn from the Spirit of God and through the vision that God gave to Peter and through the way that the Holy Spirit gave himself to the people everywhere they went. How good, how gracious, how merciful, how forgiving, how loving, how kind, how welcoming, how transformative, how cleansing our God is. Wait, 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 you mean to tell me that God who is so holy that had to judge Adam and Eve for eating a fruit? That he's willing to not only forgive Gentiles, but to fill them? As if this isn't scandalous enough. Not only does he forgive these unlikely people and love them, not only does he fill these unlikely people and empower them, he uses these unlikely people for his purposes. Which is wonderful news for you and me. Because that means God hasn't just saved us so that we could come to church and sing some songs, but he has filled us with his spirit so we could go out to all the places we live and work and do all that we do to preach the truth of the gospel. God loves the unlovely, or unlovely. he forgives the unforgivable, and empowers the weak. So how do we respond? What do we see from all this? What we just said, that he loves the unlovely, forgives the unforgivable, and empowers the weak. How should we feel? We should feel overwhelmed with gratitude that God is not holding all of our disqualifications against us because our disqualifications are legitimate. We earned separation from God. And so we should be so grateful. What do we do in response to this? We need to see ourselves and to see others the way that God sees us and sees others. If you're in Christ, then God sees you like his child, not an outsider, not keeping you at arm's length saying only these people are allowed in. No, if you have faith in Christ, God sees you as a beloved son or daughter and we get to approach him as so. And the other people in the world that do not know the Lord, we see them the way that God sees them. And he longs for us to go with the ministry of reconciliation saying, be reconciled to God. Come and see what Jesus has done for me and what he's done for you. And my prayer is that we could become a church family that is unbiased, and compassionate, or compassionate and confident ambassadors for Christ. That we would see the people who look and sound different than us and not turn away and go, but run to them the same way that our Father has run to us unclean Gentiles. Who are we to withhold from them what was not withheld from us? May the Lord fill us with his spirit, his heart of compassion and love for the lost. Amen.